Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and having your children bust in during video calls. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I despise internal combustion engines and tending grass yards, and I enjoy a good barbecue sandwich. Today, our episode is again sponsored by Reactive Ops, who we need to say thank you to for getting this podcast up and going. Uh, cloud infrastructure is hard to get right. If you want someone to do it for you and manage it for less than an internal team, look them up at reactiveops.com. And again, full disclosure, I work at Reactive Ops. Yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> and today on the show, we have Anka Moshoyu, uh, entrepreneur and founder of Tech Liminal in Oakland, a technology salon. Uh, welcome, Anka. Hi there. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm happy to be here on this uh, slightly overcast Monday morning. <laughs> well, it's good to have you on the show. Um, well, we'll just dive right in and ask you to tell us a little bit about your path to leadership. Where did you start and how did you get to where you are now? How did I get to where I am now? So i like in my mid-40s uh, and I've been working in tech since the late 1900s. I started out working for... It sounds so long ago when you say it. I'm sorry, keep going. The late 1900s. The late 1900s, not the mid-1900s, though. I mean, I never touched a punch card except as a hobby. <laughs> right out of college, I started working for a consulting company. And for most of my career, I've worked as a consultant or contractor, um, although I have joined a couple of startups and I've worked with all kinds of different teams. And my path to leadership kind of came about when I decided that I didn't want like a salesperson to sell something that couldn't be delivered on a project. And so I stepped up from being like a developer, a person who makes the thing happen to somebody who has a little bit more of a stake in the decisions about what, what happens and how we uh, define and sell a particular product. Um, and then after a couple of years of always being the sort of the square peg in the round hole of not really fitting into any particular role at these different companies that I worked for and spending a bunch of time like deciding, well, your role should be this and your role should be that. And I finally said, okay, I'm just going to go out on my own and uh, start my own thing and see what happens. I'm now in like year nine, year 10 almost of Tech Liminal and uh, I've learned a lot of lessons in the last like decade that I didn't <laughs> Didn't anticipate, but that's that's what that's what life is about. Oh, we're totally going to ask you yeah, about. Yeah, tell those. us a little uh, bit about that. What are what are some of the lessons that you've? I mean, tell us a little bit about Tech Liminal too, and, and the growth sure. you've yeah. been. I mean, ten years is it? Uh, you know, five thousand people is it just you? What's what's you know what's been involved in the growth and what's that looked like? Yeah, so I started off uh, not really sure exactly what what shape it was going to take, but I wanted to create a place where regular people could walk into, like off the street. Um, and learn how to use tools. And uh, that's very abstract and very high level. And it actually turned out to be a little bit of a problem when trying to create a company. Um, but it was interesting because I in inspired a lot of people. So I had uh, several people who kind of volunteered to, to work with me just to kind of see what was going to happen. I hired some people to keep things going. So I opened up um, a storefront in a kind of slightly sketchy area in downtown Oakland and started, you know, just attracting people and seeing what kind of stuff would come in through my door. And I had some really very interesting uh, local Oakland opportunities as a result of that. So I worked with a lot of like 
uh, online journalists. There were a couple of uh, startups that started out of TechLiminal. We did a lot of events, uh, partly because the space that I got, which was a little bit bigger than what I needed, became a great event hub for tech events in Oakland at a time when there really weren't that many. So I got to just meet a whole lot of people and get involved in a lot of different projects and activities. And uh, it's been a really interesting time. Um, what I started out wanting to do is still very much what I'm doing. So I have a small community of people who are now members who are paying into a membership program. Uh, we've got uh, weekly meetups and things that we do. And about six to eight people whose freelance businesses run through uh, tech liminal support groups. And so I kind of started with this big, vague vision, did a whole bunch of different things, and now it's a little bit smaller, more manageable uh, kind of situation uh, where I'm in a place to see what happens, what's going to happen next. So I'm kind of looking at what's going on in, in Oakland, in the tech industry, in like civic technology, and putting some pieces together. Awesome. And you talked about early on in the discussion, we talked about having people come as volunteers mm -hmm. to work with you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, so I had this you know place on 14th Street in Oakland and people would walk by, people who lived in the neighborhood. Um, and we had an electronics night and one person who came through uh, decided that they wanted to start teaching some lessons uh, and workshops. And so they started doing that out of our space, uh, just, you know, we didn't charge them. They didn't bring any money in, uh, but it was a great way for them to learn. Um, I had people who like uh, volunteer to staff the front desk so that because we had uh, a physical location, this is kind of a, a thing that you don't really think about. You have a door, people walk into it. And some of the people that walk into it are not people that, you know, you want to spend too much time with. Uh, so you have to have somebody there all the time. Uh, and so, um, you know, I had staff for a while. I, I did like work trade memberships. I had one person who like volunteered for like almost an entire year as she was looking for a new job. She just wanted to have a place that she could come to every day where it was like a regular thing and, you know, she would get support, but she didn't want to be paid she was getting unemployment or something like that, uh, but just wanted to be around. Mm -hmm. and so there were a lot of like different things that came out of that type of activity. Because when you provide support for okay. people, all of a sudden you kind of start to see what, what things that they're interested in building up and doing. Were you doing management jobs when you were working for other companies before you started TechLiminal? Not really, not really. So I kind of like jumped into management without any kind of Whoa. like prep for, I read some books. I mean, you know, I read some books. Do you have books that you recommend uh, for getting started? Was anything particularly helpful or is all like meh? <laughs> I would say, Nothing. I would say, um, you know, your basic like, you know, management books. Um, I read, you know, how to win friends and influence people. And I read uh, books about how to not be um, like a technician when you're trying to be an entrepreneur. Um, I read like the kind of, uh, you know, psychology books where you categorize people into like ENFP and those kinds of things. And like, mm -hmm. but none of that stuff really, uh, <laughs> like, I, I would. That stuff doesn't necessarily apply to volunteers yeah. for one thing. Well, some of it does. When you're working with volunteers, like what it turns out is that um, they have, they're motivated. Some of them are motivated by like intrinsic things. You can't really motivate volunteers through extrinsic means. Because uh, like they just they can just stop showing up, um, and so one of the one of the awesome people who walked in through my door was a woman named Tora Rocha who 
um, worked for the city of Oakland as um, a gardener at the time and then later a park supervisor. And she was organizing these volunteer programs to get people to clean up the parks. And she's extremely persuasive. Like she's the kind of person that like, you know, will tell you something and all of a sudden you'll be like shoveling dirt trying to figure out how you got there. Um, like, how do you do this? Um, and uh, so I helped her, um, you know, start a program in the Rose Garden here in Oakland. And then um, I helped her with uh, another kind of program where I was helping her with the technology stuff. And then she kind of like really taught me a huge amount about how, how people like are motivated and how volunteers really work. And so we had the, these groups of people um, where we went through like, um, several different cycles of this. Um, and what's interesting about volunteer organizations is that people tend to work in them until they get burned out. And so one of the things that I noticed is that as people would, you know, sign up for too much work and then try to like dominate people through personality or try to tell them the right way to do things or all of this other stuff, like people would just sort of stop showing up. Other volunteers mm-hmm. would get like, ah, oh, that person's annoying. I don't want to hang out with them. So I'm not going to show up today. So, you know, creating um, situations where people feel welcome when, when there's volunteers is very important and, and making sure that they're taking, they're getting taken care of, you know, whether it's like snacks or food or uh, drinks or their photo on a Facebook page showing like, here's this giant pile of weeds that we pulled today. And here, you know, it's happy, smiling, filthy people, um, <laughs> dirty, filthy. Um, so you know, realizing what motivates somebody. Um, and I also like, uh, saw people who were just like intrinsically motivated because they felt like they had to give back to this thing and they would just like, you know, show up time after time, but they wouldn't get involved in any of the decision-making or leadership. Um, because in, especially like volunteer organizations, people, people's personalities become much more like much more the, the force that you have to reckon with more so than your job is to do this. And therefore, you know, you're going to work on that in that direction. Uh, so it sounds like, you know, in, in paid work where it's not volunteers, you still need quality managers, but people will put up with a terrible manager because they need the paycheck. And yes. it's almost like leadership is more important when the workers are unpaid, they're coming in on a volunteer capacity. And if you don't have great leadership, people just, yeah, there's, there's less motivation to put up with it. Is that kind of yeah. what you're getting at a little bit there? Absolutely. And I mean, I've been volunteering um, since I was a kid. And so like just for various things and in situations where you've got leaders that acknowledge the people that their team as people um, where they like, don't, don't get too tied up in the bureaucracy or those kinds of things and just kind of help the help their team feel more fulfilled. It works a lot better. Uh, it's also much more important even than in a job, I mean, a, a paid job to watch out for uh, people who are kind of disruptive, like in a volunteer organization, somebody who uh, you know, attracts all the attention because they just need a lot of attention. Uh, that can be kind of a downer because they, they make it harder for other people to feel like they're being rewarded. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so then, I mean, I'm curious too, with regards to that, it seems like there's times where you know, terrible manager is achieving certain goals is, is yeah. getting, you know, the kinds of output that the higher ups want and therefore, you know, keeps getting promoted. And I'm curious in, in, you know, with more volunteer work, is it almost entirely about the people and less about the output? How, how does that work? Is, is my question clear? 
Yeah, I would say that um, it depends on what you're like trying to accomplish overall. And there's also scenarios where it might be called volunteer, but it's not really volunteering. Like you need to volunteer a certain number of hours to get your probation completed or your high school national honor society, blah, 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 completed. So you kind of have to do these kinds of things. Um, But in some cases, like, volunteers can be like super efficient because it's not something they do all the time. So like uh, in the context of like pulling weeds, for example, somebody who's like really enthusiastic that one day can do a lot. There's, I have this great picture of like eight people kind of pulling this giant um, IV off of a hill and rolling it up and then just shoving it like down to a truck, which is, you know, if you were doing it like for a living, there would probably be like less enthusiasm and less yelling, but it was kind of fun. And so when you're <laughs> when you're doing something with volunteers, like you also you can also inject a little bit more fun into it. But the people that you know that are skilled at doing it for a living, um, like they are just faster at just getting the thing done. They're much more efficient because they're you know that's that's what they do. They practice it. Um, with volunteers, you kind of want to let them learn a few things, and and you can't get too like you know too bent out of shape if it's not perfect. And then. What happens if you have somebody who, say, does like outdoors work, does pulls ivy off of fences mm-hmm. for a living or whatever, and then they come volunteer for you and they're dealing with all of these volunteers who don't really know what they're doing? Is it fun for them? Does it end up really frustrating for them? Like, what's what's the dynamic there? So sometimes it's fun for them. Like, they're, you know, it depends on the personality of that person. Like, um, because in the city we had uh, people who are employees who were, uh, supervising these volunteers who were theoretically doing something that was almost like their job. There was a little bit of friction at first, but then uh, when people are just nice to each other, it seems more like, oh yeah, you're here and you've got this like group of 20 like amateurs doing this job that like two paid staff could do in the same amount of time, but you don't have the paid staff to do it. So you've got to get it done. Um, so I think it really depends like the perspective of uh, the employees that have to deal with the volunteers kind of uh, shifted a little bit uh, where they were initially, some of them were kind of very leery of having these people coming in to do what they could be, what they could perceive as their job. But at the end, it turns out that like when you're volunteering to do something and it's kind of crappy, like that is not something you want to do when it's super hot or when it's raining or when you're uncomfortable. It, it makes you more appreciative of the fact that somebody has to do this for a living. And so I know that, huh. you know, yeah, that, yeah. that helped in, in that regard. And that got conveyed to the to the actual employees of the city yeah, in some yeah. way. Well, what, cool. the, what Tora did is that, you know, she, and you should probably interview her for this. Like, <laughs> she'd be a fantastic Ooh, All right, well, we'll get, we'll get her uh, contact info from yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she kind of, uh, she taught her employees that, you know, their job in this context was to kind of supervise and help. And, you know, once they kind of like got over the fact that like, oh, this is kind of weird, um, a lot, some of them really got, into it and they were happy and excited to see all these people. And then when you're volunteering and you're interacting with the employees for the city, for example, um, you just get to feel like you're more part of a community and that adds to the investment in the place that, that a lot of us feel, you know, it makes it that when you're arguing about something at city hall, you realize you think about everybody there as a human being instead of like, you know, lazy workers or bureaucrats or whatever. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And along the path to, to where you are now, 
what has been like the hardest or most difficult or possibly most embarrassing lesson you've learned about leading people? Oh my God. Uh, there's been, there've been a lot. Um, I think that the, the biggest one, which was sort of also the hardest was that when you're leading people, your own ego has to kind of take a little bit of a backseat. There's sort of two schools to like leading. There's the kind of like, I am the, you know, I am the best and everybody else sucks and you're going to follow me because I'm the best. Uh, and that works in some context. And then there's the, we're all in this together and we're going in this direction because this is the right direction to go into. And everybody kind of thinks that because that, that, uh, that objective has been subsumed into their, their own objectives. And I think that, you know, the, the scenario where like, I'm the leader, you should follow. <laughs> it's sort of like the, okay, now I'm in charge. Everybody's going to do what I say. It's not quite, it doesn't work out that way. <laughs> like people have to be motivated. If I were the king of Oakland. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like even when I had, um, you know, I hired employees and I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. And then, you know, in my mind, it was like super clear what that was. And like the first couple of times I'm like, why are they not doing what I, you know, what I thought that should happen. Like I, I said it very clearly. And this is a lesson that I should have learned because my job as a consultant is to like translate between different people, you know, to like understand that when someone says one thing and another person says something different, like there's something missing in that conversation. And like my job is to suss it out and, and translate. When I, when I was in charge, I didn't, I just, you know, I would notice that the thing didn't come out the way I wanted. I'm like, why? You needed you. You need you in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So just like, you know, try to slow down a little bit and like mentor people and like, you know, um, give them the context that they needed. So I had like, um, over the course of, of Tech Liminal, I had like maybe five or six different employees and like about 10 or 20 different contractors. And like some people are like super like meticulous and with it. And you, you say, do this. And they say, is this what you want me to do? And they sort of reflect it back and then they go off and do it. And other people like you say things to them and they say, uh-huh, sure. I heard you. And then they come back with something totally different or they kind of get stuck halfway <laughs> through and drift off. So, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I started off like this extremely optimistic about people kind of like everybody like is, you know, it's good and motivated and like, because coming from a professional environment and especially a consulting environment, which was fairly like, if you weren't like, if you weren't uh, performing enough, you would get cut. Uh, I sort of assumed that everybody was like super enthusiastic and like highly confident motivated and very motivated. Way. And it turns out that like, you yeah. know, someone who's just, you know, getting a job might not have some of that motivation. Um, so, mm -hmm. so the people who like said, Hey, I want to work with you no matter what, even if you don't pay me, like had a lot of enthusiasm, but weren't always like going in the same direction, but they really wanted to be there. And then the people whom I paid, uh, some of them were just kind of like, eh, you know, I'm here, whatever, it's okay. And then some of them were like super enthusiastic and, and worked really well in that and all of that. But just seeing different, different personality types and just, you know, like there's, there's much more many more different kinds of people out there than than exist in the corporate world. So I, I need, I, I want a little bit of clarity because I'm having difficulty uh, combining tech liminal being a technology salon with some mm -hmm. of the things you're talking about. So can you just explain a little bit more about what tech liminal does specifically? Give me an example sure. or two maybe of a project. Yeah. So to start with the, the, the uh, park volunteering actually came out of, a project where a friend of mine actually built a startup out of Tech Liminal. 
that allowed people to track volunteer time. And so volunteers would go and they would, they would have this online and mobile place where they could track their hours. And that was built um, on top of technology, but also like to, to get started, we had to join a volunteer organization and kind of participate and help motivate people. Um, so the other type of stuff that the training and coaching is also kind of in this context of stuff that people want to accomplish. So for example, um, I have clients that are building e-commerce websites where uh, I help them organize their code, organize their data, figure out how to import things into the site, debug problems that occur, but it's always in the context of their projects. And so uh, the part that's liminal is the part that helps um, our customers cross over from like maybe knowing about something or knowing that something is possible or maybe even like having seen a video about how to do it to actually doing it in a sustainable way. So there's like, there's a lot of like um, practice involved in like a real world situation. Okay. That's helpful. Thanks for, for giving some specifics around that. So talk about your relationship to your relationship with authority in this organization. And, you know, how do you feel about having authority over others? Um, and then maybe how do you feel about having when other people have authority over you? I have the kind of anti-authoritarian streak, which I've heard some of the other people on your podcast talk about. Um, <laughs> where like, you know, I think, well, you know, I, there there's authority and I have to question it. Like, why are they doing this? What's the purpose? Who's it for? Who benefits? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but being in charge, like there's a certain level of responsibility. Like I would have, you know, hard, a hard time sleeping at night when I was worried, like, okay, like how are we going to get to uh, the next month of revenue or, you know, how is this person going to succeed at this thing where I just realized, Oh, I asked them to do something I didn't know how to do. And then they try to do it and they totally like screwed it up. And now how do I kind of, give them the, um, the, the mental boost they need to be able to get started again. So like being in charge and being responsible is like, it's definitely anxiety inducing. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that, that sort of responsibility for other people and their success. See, but you don't necessarily, and how do you feel about it when other people have authority over you? Uh, um, I have to accept their authority, like in a sort of fairly, informal but also formal way to say okay yes I agree that you're telling me what to do and I'm going to do it because I agree with it not necessarily just because you tell me how to do it that I need to do it so yeah not just because you're in yeah well I mean, yeah. as an employee I was always like why are we doing this again what what's the benefit mm -hmm. what's the goal what's the objective and so like you know just asking these questions um it's very helpful for me because I will I would always understand oh okay we're doing this project because you know, this thing is happening or I'm being told to do this thing that doesn't make any sense, but there's actually a reason for it. So I always want to mm -hmm. know why. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't just like, you know. Yeah. You don't blindly follow. Don't cross the street on red. Why? Cause you'll get hit by a car. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't touch the hot stove. I don't know. Why? I might question that myself. Like, really? Yeah. Will I? There's only one way to find out. <laughs> Never seen that. Happen. Yes. Yes. But yeah. But it, that sounds like that attitude is what really put you on the path to being an entrepreneur and, and owning your own business because now you're, you're on the other side of things. You have to provide, you know, sometimes you can't always give all the information yeah. that is behind the decision, right? Sometimes there's privacy or there's, you know, there's other concerns that, of the business. Yeah. I don't know if that's something that comes up with you or like, 
you know, we're doing this for the city as, as a volunteer project, but, but why, you know, why aren't we doing something more important? Well, you don't necessarily know the answer to that mm -hmm. question. That's a difficult place to be in. And I think a lot of middle managers are in that position a yeah. lot where they're like, well, this is something that's come down from the exec teams. And, you know, we have some idea of why, but not necessarily hundred percent. That part is very difficult, mm -hmm. right? When you get to the point where you can't fully explain, have you been in that situation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how did you deal well, with it? Well, so I can say that I have a huge amount more empathy for all of my managers and any manager that I've encountered <laughs> you know, since actually trying to be in charge. So some things I noticed and you know, when I when I was the when I was the person like um you know, I don't always uh I don't always like keep secrets. I'm like, "Oh, this is happening. Everybody should know. We should deal with it." Um and so when you're responsible, sometimes when you do that and you tell people and the situation is not as dire or there's not as much risk, like people freak out over things that turn out not to be that important. And when you're on the mm -hmm. side of the person, free when you're the person freaking out, cause like, Oh my gosh, you know, this, like this client didn't, you know, didn't pay us and we're all going to get laid off and it's going to be horrible. And like, I'm, ah. um, you know, when you're the person like negotiating with the client, like you've got to like, you know, they are going to pay us. It might, you know, take us, a, it might take a little bit longer and I'm going to have to do something to make that happen. But, you know, if you freak your people out, then they are not very productive. And so there's this balance between like, you know, what do you tell? What, what do you say? Like, do you just like tell everyone everything or do you like, you know, balance out things that are probably not going to, be relevant later on, um, et cetera. So have you made, have you made that, have you made a mistake there before? Do you think? Yeah. I know oh, I for have. sure. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm in charge now. So like this thing is happening and it might not work out. And like, I'm telling you because I'm full information. And then like the person yeah, hears like, that oh, and then like, they're yeah. like freaking out for the next like week. And I'm like, well, you know, we need to totally. still do the thing, you know, whatever happens, we still have to show up every day and do this thing. So like, why are you freaking out? Like, well, ah, this thing might not go right. Catastrophe. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, but oh, on the other gosh. hand, like I had um, a manager once where we were building a, some software and all the develop the development and design team were like, we have this deadline and we're going to like work our ass off to get to the deadline. And we get to the deadline and the person who like told us about the deadline was like, oh yeah, I told you the deadline that was one week early because I wanted you guys to work harder so that we would release on time. Oh. Now. And on the one hand, we were like, oh, thank God, like this, we're not late. But on the other hand, like you jerk, like you don't like, you know, make us freak out like that. And so. Yeah, and you're never trying that person again. That, that, that's a bridge burned right there. Well, but he was right. Wow. He was right. So by making us like work harder the week before, it meant that we had a whole week of like, just fixing like tiny problems instead of like feeling like we, we totally blew our deadline. But I did not appreciate that at the time. I was like so pissed. Yeah, if he'd said, I want it to be done at this time so we have a week to adjust to it, everyone would have had this uh, a completely different mental space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's tough to, it's tough to, uh, to, to make that uh, case for in both scenarios because like I was not the only one that was mad and I, I'd lost trust in that person. And so like when they told me something later, I didn't trust them, but sure. as it turns out, like the fact that they did that actually turned out to be useful. So, you know, so you do you, yeah, you seem like you cannot really decide whether that was the right thing to do or not. 
uh, like long term, maybe it wasn't the right mm -hmm. thing, you know, because you weren't really able to trust that person as a leader yeah, again. Yeah. But if it was a one-time shot, maybe, you know, maybe it was the right thing to do. Do you think that it would not have gone as well if they hadn't done that to you? Do you think you would not have finished the project? Um, I think that we would have still finished the project. Like, I think that it would have been a different scenario. Like, if we had all known what the real deadline was, um, we might have made some other different decisions. We we might have tried to take on more than we could do. Um, but mm -hmm. at the same time, we, you know, just having that knowledge and, and meaning that like we could, we could own that decision and we could own the, the thing that happened at the end. So that's, I look at that yeah. as like a decision that, you know, in the long, in the short run turned out to probably be right, but in the long run, like was not the best decision. So like, you know, if mm -hmm. there's a scenario like that where it's like, okay, I, you know, I gotta like, you know, hide this thing because if we don't, some, some terrible action is going to happen later. Uh, I don't know. Like <laughs> I'd have a hard time with that. Yeah, I'd rather yeah. people know what's going on. I'm pro transparency, yeah, you know, it's just, it's just easier if you don't have to like hide things. Yeah. And the way in which you deliver those kinds of things, like if you're talking about the financials at your company or whatever, the way you deliver it makes a big difference mm -hmm. as well. Things are not completely on fire necessarily. You don't have to act like it, but you can be honest about your uh, your situation. Yeah. Um, I want to change tacks a little bit here. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert, and and how do you think that affects uh, your? Work? I'm borderline. So whenever I take the Myers Briggs test, sometimes I half the time I come up introvert, and half the time I come up extrovert by like one question. And so mm -hmm. okay. I think that I can. I like. I think that my thinking and my decision-making process is more introvert related, but the way that I relate to people is more extroverted. Um, okay. Has becoming uh, your own boss and a manager or leader of other people changed the way you look at mm -hmm. that? It's made me realize that I need to ask more questions of like mentors and peers. So whereas before I would be like, Oh, well, you know, I'll just see what happens and then think about it. And, and you know, yeah, yeah. like there's some things that when you're dealing with lots of other people or you have to make a decision quickly you can't just like see how it plays out and then do it differently next time um, i learned from yeah. your own introverted yeah. process seeking input and like saying hey the situation's happening what do you think um i also just uh -huh. read a lot so like i read um there's a really great uh web column called ask a manager and there's like every week or every couple of days or yeah, there, there's like questions about, well, my manager's doing this. So I just like, I read to see what other people are going through and, and how they're dealing with their, their own uh, issues. Okay. Um, and have you, was there anything in that? I've heard of that column and I've, I've had people, you know, paste me specific things that were interesting. Is there something recently in that column that you have found useful or thought, found particularly interesting? Uh, a few weeks ago, I helped somebody who was looking for a new job, like uh, figure out how to negotiate. And I just went back and like, I found like four or five different uh, examples from mm -hmm. the column and sent them to her. Um, so like, okay. it depends. Sometimes I read it because there's a, there's, there's a question that's relevant to me and other times there's just like, Oh my God, somebody farted in the office and how are they dealing with that? Uh, oh no. There's like humor <laughs> as well as a, a, like very good heartfelt uh, practical advice. Oh, I mean, clearly you fire oh, them. Oh man. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. About that. Creating a, 
creating a toxic environment. Home. Oh, um, <laughs> and in case anybody who's listening is wondering, it's askmanager.org uh, for that website. I just looked that up. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's fantastic. Awesome. What do you think separates someone who is a junior leader from a senior one in terms of skills and abilities, the tendencies? We talked a little bit about like how, what you learned about you know, using your introvert, introvertedness mm-hmm. versus extrovertedness. Uh, can you think of other things that uh, indicate someone's more senior, has more wisdom? I think that the biggest difference is how much they burn themselves out. So a junior leader will be like, look at me, I can do this and all of this. And oh my God, I need to do all of this. They try to, they take on way too much. And the more senior leader will look at the people that they're leading and delegate a lot more stuff. So they they realize that um, the perfect is the enemy of the good and that it is okay for things to be done slightly differently than they themselves would do it. And there's people who are like in their 60s who don't realize that, who may still be junior leaders. So it's not, it's not a matter of youth. It's just a matter of attitude in, in many ways. But what's the, what's the balance there? Because I, I, I find it, I mean, this is something I wonder about a lot, right? Has the perfect manager arrived at a situation where they delegate everything and they play cards all day? How does a senior leader know what things to take on? Or is that what it is? It's just the, the, the senior leader knows what to take on and what to delegate versus delegates all the things and sits around and twiddles their thumbs. I don't think that if you're in a situation that requires leadership, you're not going to be twiddling your thumbs. Um, you're going to be doing the other, other work that is required to make your people be successful. So, you know, if you're in the situation where you are the technical expert, it makes it a little bit harder to be just the leader because you also have to convey some kind of technical expertise. But most of the time, if you're a leader, you bring in the person that has maybe more technical expertise in this very deep area than you do and let them go to town, but make sure that their way is clear, their path is clear. So there's kind of this leadership versus management notion um, a good manager gets out of the way, but while they're out of the way, they're also like plowing the snow from the road so that the team can proceed. Um, so, you know, they're not, you're not twiddling your thumbs because you've delegated all the work. You now have other kinds of work to do, uh, which entails framing the project in the right way or making sure that the team never hears about the layoffs that are coming or, um, you know, the, <laughs> the lawsuit or whatever, whatever things might get in the way of keeping the, the team like emotionally satisfied and proceeding. Yeah. And there's some aspects of this that also are a little bit about um, ego, right? When mm-hmm. you're, a, when you're less experienced and you, are, you take on your first management roles, maybe you think that you're in charge and that's awesome. And it's all about me. You know, I, it's all about me being in charge. And as you develop wisdom and experience, you think, oh, no, it's actually more about the team and about what we can all accomplish together. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems less important that you be the one credited with the work uh, in a way. I, I've, I've seen that happen uh, a lot. And I don't yeah. know whether that's something that, you know, also has all come up for you versus just the skill, knowing when to do what. Well, I think that the, the biggest job of a leader is to keep the vision and to just make sure that everyone is still going in that direction or that they're working towards the goal that they set out to do. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a leader, I feel like, you know, in some ways I wasn't really able to convey the vision of what I wanted to do such that it was actually done that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But other times, you know, my 
enthusiasm of my ability to convey the vision has manifested in a way that maybe wasn't exactly what I was expecting. Um, so I think that just being able to keep people focused uh, is, is really critical. Um, when you're a young leader, you're like, I'm in charge because I'm the best. And this, this, the fact that I'm in charge is like my little star on my, you know, whatever report card. Um, that's a little bit different. Like that's kind of, you're still like not sure about your position and you're worried that somebody will not take you seriously. Um, but you know, you just still have to make the decisions and, and do the, do the work. I think something I didn't really talk about is that leaders also need to make decisions that are not always like, oh, there's no, maybe there's no winning in a certain situation. So, you know, you've got to like, for example, you know, you've got to like fire two people from your team because the company is, has layoffs. And so you've got to pick two people from this team of people that you have whom you appreciate, but you know, two of them have to go because your boss's boss's boss has said that. Um, and I've fortunately never had to do that. Uh, but I've been in a situation where I've watched other people make those decisions and some of them do it in a way that's like, you know, very respectable and ethical and don't, didn't hurt people. In other cases, I've seen somebody make a decision like just like completely ego and personality based and like, aha, now I can get rid of this person. Wow. <laughs> like, Sounds like a terrible manager. Ugh. Yeah. Well, you know, they're out there. Never there, there there's hard. bad managers out there? <laughs> Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. oh my gosh oh, well. <laughs> well people have feelings and you can't just you can't get over that yeah uh, well speaking of feelings how how has becoming a leader affected your personal life do you think it's been has anything changed and do you think it's positive or negative um well I've always kind of been a leader in my personal life and you know but I think I hope uh the way that it's changed is it's made me a little bit more humble because like you know, I'm, I was always the one who, when my friends were like, oh, we can't decide where to have lunch. And I'm like, I'm hungry. How about this place? You know, and like, mm -hmm. <laughs> take that kind of like willingness to make a decision and have it shut down and just like get through that process of indecisiveness. Just um, kickstart the process. And yeah. And like, you know, I want things. And so like, I know that to get things, I have to work for it. And so like, just because I do that, people kind of like, oh, look, she knows what she's doing. And so like, let's Let's see what's going on here. Um, you know, so I've always like kind of done things or organized things or, um, you know, brought things to people. And so uh, I think being responsible in a professional way has, has made me a lot more aware of the personal interpersonal issues and also like how to let people make their own decisions and, and see what happens instead of trying to make those decisions for them. So I'm less bossy as a person. I guess. <laughs> I that's love that this was about point. like picking what food to have for dinner because that's that's always, uh, and it's also emotional labor, right? Like yes, everyone and figuring out what they want. It's like no, just let, let's just how about this? Well, like, <laughs> I, I really like that being a boss at work has yielded you being less bossy in life. Like that's that's a really amusing outcome. Uh, <laughs> yes. good. Like, well, you know. I can only be wrong so many times. You, uh, um, <laughs> and you found, you found experience, you know, you've learned some things. And so you've learned that necessarily being bossy isn't the way to get what you want. Yeah. I learned that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that like, I mean, in the situation of like, where do we go for lunch? Like I, 
I don't know if you've been in this, you know, you're in, in your office with like the other seven people on your team and you're like, all right, let's go, let's go have lunch. And 25 minutes later, you've like, have not gone to lunch or decided where to go for lunch. And it's like, okay. Uh, and now everyone's yeah. hangry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then no one wants to like, you know, well, yeah. well, you can make the decision. Yes. We'll go. That sounds great blah blah blah. like somebody has to go and say okay how about this place and then you know no how about this place no how about this place no how about this place no all right, all right I'm going to see y'all later yeah i'm going somewhere you can come with then me they if you all want. follow you know but that's leadership right there yeah. <laughs> 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 place for lunch wait this person's well. not talking she's gonna eat food let's go right. well so anka we have to wrap up for time's sake <laughs> here but we let you go if money were no object what would you do with your life would things dramatically change uh not too dramatically um i think i i have a unique opportunity right now to kind of do the thing and be paid for the thing that i really want to be doing um so yeah i think that i would probably do a lot more um like civic and uh, government type work if money were no object but yeah yeah, more volunteering of that sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're organizing at that higher level. All right. Um, and uh, for folks listening, where can people find you on the internet should they wish to learn more about you, talk to you yeah. on the Twitters or whatever? Yeah, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Anka, A-N-C-A. Um, you can find my company Tech Liminal, like subliminal, but with tech, uh, on Twitter, on uh, LinkedIn, on the web, techliminal.com. Um, and we're here in Oakland, California, and there are always in-person meetings that you can come to, even though I no longer run a co-working space. I still have lots of opportunities for people from diverse backgrounds to meet around technology-related topics. Sweet. That is an excellent ending to that pitch. I like that. <laughs> um, well, thank thanks for being much. with us, Anka. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah.